Well, I understand you've come to Lord's Day 35 in the afternoon preaching on the Heidelberg Catechism. In connection therewith, we would like to read from Isaiah 44 and from Isaiah 46. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 9, Lord's Day 35 has to do with worshiping God in man-made ways and idolatry. And so verse 9 of chapter 44 touches on that, talks about these things in this passage. Hear the word of God, Isaiah 44, verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses, they neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men, let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, they sh yet shall they fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails, he drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule, he marks one out with chalk, he fashions it with a plane, he marks it with a out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may reign in the house, remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some he will take some of it and warm himself, yet he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know or understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, yes, I also have baked bread on its coals, I have roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make uh, the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you fountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So far the word of God. Then we turn to chapter 46. In 46, Isaiah talks about Baal and Nebo, also God's Nebuchadnezzar, uh, 
Near Eastern world. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you then liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? The lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves, yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder, they carry it and set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, and will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is the word of the Lord. And we turn then to the confession of the church in Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35 concerns the second word of the covenant, the second commandment which reads, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that's heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Concerning this, Lord's Day 35 says, what does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity, for no, no, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. So far, the confession of the church. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I'm not sure that people realize it, but if you read along in the Catechism carefully this afternoon, if you read that carefully, 
then you know that the very liturgy, the very activity we do here week by week, how exactly we worship God has a lot to do with the second commandment. You begin to see that when you consider this. What precisely is the difference between the first and the second commandments? It is this. Whereas the first commandment deals with the object of our worship, the second commandment deals with the manner of our worship. In the first commandment, God says, worship me and me alone. In the second commandment, God says, when you worship me, I want you to do this in this way and not in that way. Or to put it differently, in the first one, God says, do not worship any heathen gods. In the second one, God says, do not worship me in any heathen ways either. When you see clearly this distinction, then the second commandment actually becomes searching and powerful. It becomes very relevant to the very things we are doing every Lord's Day. It spills over in every other way. The question is not just whether or not we have statues or idols of God hanging openly or hidden in the closets of our homes or even here in the church, but the question is, is all our worship based on man-made ideas or on the truth of the Word of God? Today it seems all the emphasis is on the worship experience, how we feel about it, whether it pleases us, excites us, and whatnot else. And that's not irrelevant, but here we are being taught what is first in worship is not us, but it is God, that God be honored through our worship, that it be formed according to His Word, and that it conform in everything according to the same Word of God. Perhaps the point is this, every religion has its liturgy, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, They all have a way in which their religion is carried out and exercised. You know that. To think of their religion is to think of the religious practices that you might know about. Even when it comes to serving idols, there's a liturgy about that. If you serve money, sex, power, there's a certain way in which you carry these things out. You could call it liturgy. It's what you do in the service of your God. Well, in the second commandment, God says... I will be the one who defines your liturgy. You will listen to my word. His word will shape the practice. So God's word is proclaimed to you this afternoon as it has been summarized by the church under this theme. The living God calls his people to living worship. We'll see the second word of the covenant has to do with the living God, his living word, and his living congregation. The living God, his living word, and his living congregation. What's really at stake in the second commandment then? Well, brothers and sisters, it's interesting to go back to Adam for a moment. Think about it. Adam there in paradise had no inclination whatsoever to make an idol or an image of God. Why would he? There in the garden, he had wonderful direct fellowship with God. God walked with him in the garden in the cool of the day. God talked to Adam. Adam could talk to God whenever he wanted to. In that first world, untouched by the filth of sin, there was a union and communion we will never be able to fathom until we're in that new paradise of God, in that new heaven and earth ourselves, the one that's even better than the first one. But see what happens after the fall into sin. Then man and God are separated. Man has the sense of a disconnect between himself and God. So what does he do by way of idols and images He attempts to bridge the gap. He attempts to make that which is now invisible visible again. 
Sometimes the piece of wood or stone or whatever represents the God far away, he, he brings it close. Sometimes they actually believe that the very image is God itself. For see, to, to their way of thinking, to have an idol or an image of God is to have that God under your power, under your control. If you have an image of the God whom you fear, then you feel safe and secure. Then you can see and touch your God. You can take Him with you under your arm wherever you go, whenever you go somewhere. It may sound ridiculous, but it happens again and again. The second commandment says, you shall not make an image of anything that is in heaven above. That is, in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, people did that. Or an image of something on the earth beneath, of a man or an animal walking upon the earth. Or an image of anything under the, under the earth, of the fish who swim in the seas, lakes, and rivers. Apostle Paul says the same thing when he speaks to the Romans about ungodly and wicked people. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. The truth is, when you think about it, you know, in making images of anything, of, of God, is foolishness. It's ridiculous. This, this morning we heard about humor, we heard about sarcasm. Well, this afternoon, you read these scriptures carefully, it's about mockery. God is mocking the nonsense of making an image of Him, making an image to worship God by. There's a delightful little story in the apocryphal book, Bell and the Dragon. The book is mentioned in Article 6 of the Belgian Confession. The Belgian Confession says you can read that stuff as long as you don't take your doctrine from it. And I, I used to read it, and when I was a pastor, a regular pastor, I would read it with my catechism students when that stuff came up, because it's also mockery of the foolishness of idolatry. Chapter 14 ridicules the worship of, of idols. There, the king of Persia points to this statue that he's made, and he says to Daniel, do you not think that this statue, Bel, is a living God? Don't you see how much he eats and drinks every day? The people are told to bring food for him and, and stuff to, for him to drink. And the next morning, all the food is gone and all the drink is all gone because Bell, the, 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 the statue, supposedly eats and drinks all this stuff. Daniel shares his disbelief, according to Bell and the dragon. And the king demands that the 70 priests of Bell show who's eating all his food that's put out at night and gone in the morning. But what does Daniel do? He sneaks in at night into the temple of Bel. He covers the floor of the temple with ashes and he proves the next day from the footprints that it was not Bel who ate and drank all the food. It was the priests, their wives, and their children who were being fed and who were drinking all the stuff the people brought for the service of Bel. Bel, foolish. Idolatry is sheer foolishness. Crassly put, it's just plain stupid. It's a recurring theme in Isaiah as well. Isaiah 44, verse 14, Isaiah speaks about how ridiculous it is. He says, a man cuts down a tree from some of the wood. He, he makes a fire. He warms himself. And part of the wood, he makes his meal. And from the rest of the tree, he makes this idol. He shapes it and forms it with hammer and chisel. And when he kneels, and then he, what does he do? He, he kneels before it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. Right after mentioning that, you can hear the ridicule in Isaiah's voice. 
They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. A deluded heart has led them astray. The same thing you see in chapter 46, sarcasm. In verse 1, he speaks about the idols, Bel and Nebo. He sketches how powerless and useless these idols are. Those idols, he says, men take them and load them up on beasts and cattle. They are loaded as burdens on weary beasts. And where do these animals take them? They go into captivity. Yes, notice, into captivity. Not only can these idols not save people from heading to that dreadful place, that captivity, they cannot even save themselves. The idols themselves go into captivity. What kind of gods are these? He says, what a ridiculous thing. People take their gold and their silver. They hire a goldsmith who makes it into a god, and they fall down and worship the idol they have made themselves. Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. This time it leads God not to decry their lack of intelligence, but instead to attempt to wake them up with the words in verse 8 and following. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, that I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, the idols we worship today are no different. The money we worship is crafted for us in Winnipeg, in the Royal Canadian Mint. The cars we adore are made in factories. The sports heroes are just people here today, gone tomorrow. And so many of the stars of this world are just created by the media and the hype of advertising. The point is, idolatry is always foolish. In a word, it's plain, simple stupidity. There's only one God who's worthy of worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has revealed himself so wonderfully in the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus. John speaks about that in his gospel, and instead of the mockery of idolatry, we get the language of of worship and adoration. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is idolatry so wrong? First of all, because it's an attack upon God's nature. Is it not one of the features of God that He's invisible to the human eye? Did God not Himself say to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Did John not say in his gospel, No one has ever seen God? And did Paul not sing a hymn, as it were, to Timothy about God as the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see? Well, is it then not senseless to make an image of a God who cannot be seen? How can we even imagine that we can do so? Secondly, image worship is an attack upon the greatness of God. I think here of that refrain that rings through the prophecies of Isaiah. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Thirdly, you could say what it does, what image worship does is it denies the freedom of God. 
The Almighty God of heaven and earth says about himself, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It means God will be where he wants to be. He will bless whom he wants to bless. But when man makes an image, then he says, God, I'm going to take you on my shoulder or put you in this box and you're going to bless me and you're going to show me your grace and show me your mercy. We could say when people make images and idols, they have a God who is dead, a dead God, and not the living God of the Scriptures. Then things become very mechanical, ever so static. If you want a God on your side, you make an image of Him, and you place Him before you. If you want God somewhere else, then you put the image of yours under your arm, and you, and you take Him somewhere else. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. Think of that other word, beautiful word of Isaiah. This is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him or her who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the way to the living God, he who walks in faith, in humility, he and he alone may know of God's nearness. He who does what God has commanded him to do in the conditions of the covenant has with, he has with God, may count on God's blessing, on God's grace and favor. Live in relationship with God, and you know of the blessings that flow out of that. Think of the words of Moses to Israel. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments which I command you this day, all these blessings shall come upon you. Blessed shall you be in the city, in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your beasts. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. So it goes today as well, brothers and sisters. We may not think the Lord is near and His blessing is sure because of all kinds of static reasons. Not just because you go to church or just because you're baptized. You make an idol out of those things. So too for us we need to realize the presence and the worship of the Lord is much more dynamic than that. Buildings and sacraments do not assure us of His presence. Also today, the rule is, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. God dwells with those who are contrite of heart. The Lord is near to His people in His Word, through faith, in prayer, in worship. It's clarified when we move, secondly, to see that we have not only to do with the living God, but also with a living Word, His living Word. What's the point? It's this variation. Whenever you make an image of God and when you worship God according to your image, you get a very restricted God, a very limited God, one who only focuses on one or two things, one who is only relevant to one or two aspects of life. Then God's great and incredible nature becomes restricted of necessity, this is how it is. For no one image may fully, can fully represent the many sides of this God of ours. You see this with Aaron and the golden calf. Why did they make an image of a calf? Because what they wanted at that particular point was a God who was strong and mighty and could lead them to the promised land. You need some strength for that. And a calf was a symbol of such strength. And so it went in those lands if you wanted a God who would make, give you strength, you made such a God. If you wanted a God who would increase the fertility of the land, you made an idol of a fertile God. 
If you wanted one who would keep away the lightning, you made such a God, and so forth and so on, according to your imagination. That's why those who worship idols, they have to worship more idols. You have to have more than one. For every idol can only represent one God or one aspect of God. It's the same thing we have experienced in the history of the New Testament church. When Rome wants to increase the Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, she knows the best way to do that. Fill the churches and the homes with statues and pictures of Mary. It's a proven fact. If you habitually focus your thoughts on an image or of a picture of the one to whom you are to pray, you will gradually come, gradually come to think of him and pray to him as the image represents him. And that's why the catechism puts it so beautifully. God doesn't want his people taught by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Yes, images are dumb, dumb, just as all idolatry is lacking in intelligence, as Isaiah says, but dumb also because they can never speak adequately about the many sides and the many amazing aspects of our great God and Savior. But the preaching that is living, yes, notice the catechism doesn't say, by the preaching of His living word, but by the living preaching of His word, it's the preaching that is living and it's living not just when you have a lively minister, but it's living because here there's a voice. Idols don't speak, do they? Images have nothing verbal to say, but the preaching is the preaching of the Word, and that Word has to do with the voice of God. Think of Deuteronomy 4. It's foundational here. Moses reminds the people of God that at Mount Sinai, they didn't see a form. They didn't see an image. There was no image. There was only a voice the voice of God, because the people of God are to be led by the voice of God. And that's why in the history of the church, the idols came down, the pulpits went up. If idolatry is okay, then all the people of God have to do is carry a little idol in their pockets and they can go on their way, blessed forever. But because idols are not okay, they must come to church and hear the voice of God. And the Word of God must be proclaimed to them here we see the critical importance of the proclamation of the Word, not the opinions of men need to be proclaimed, not pastoral hobby horses, but the full counsel of the Word of God, the living preaching of the Word. The voice of the minister must be hooked in with the voice of God through the study of the Word. And this in contrast with dead idolatry, this will be living. Now it's not just a matter of idols like good like charms. Now that worship on the Lord's Day has an effect every day. In that way, even though we never see God and there are no forms or images here, we come to know God and to know Him thoroughly and to love Him because of the power of His Word. Not only do we come to know Him, we come to know about ourselves, the persons whom we are, the persons whom we are meant to be in Christ. For whereas dumb images can only zero in on one aspect of life, the preaching does the opposite. One week it zeroes in on this aspect, this personal aspect of your life. Another one on that aspect. It speaks about your personal life. It convicts you of sin. It speaks about your family life, about your attitude towards your neighbor. It touches on every aspect of life, education and labor, business and economics, politics and science, you name it. Even though all these things may not be mentioned by name every time, Yet faithful exposition of Scripture is going to give you the principles that undergird how all these things are to be seen. 
If you want an image in Scripture of God, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews says He is the image of the invisible God. Study Him in the Scriptures. John says no one has ever seen God, but he says we've seen Him. We have beheld Him. Glory is of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the closest you ever come because you see Him loving and caring and instructing and blessing and reprimanding and and telling people how they ought to live. That is the image of God. Preach Christ and you're preaching the image of God to the people who don't live by dumb images, but they live by the Word of God. And so you see the great scriptural wisdom of the catechism. Even though the Reformers lived in an age when they had to combat all the idols and all the images, they didn't limit the meaning of the second word to that. They didn't say, we are finished with this second word when we can say, I have no images in my house. There are no images in this church, no golden calves, no statues of Mary. No, they knew the second commandment speaks about the manner in which we should worship God. The second word speaks about how we are to worship Him. And I worship is, is not meant in a general sense of how all our life is worship, but the commandment is talking especially about those moments of worship in your life. Worship in church, worship in your home, worship in your private moments. How do you do that? Do you resort to good luck charms, all kinds of methods that have no origin in the Word of God? Do we realize there are no tricks here? There's no magic here. It's just the Word and prayer again and again but always with the intent that in our hearts, in our lives, there are no barriers, no barriers of unconfessed sin, of uncontrolled anger, just a heart that wants to draw near to God and thank Him for the wonderful way in which He's drawn near to us in Christ and enjoy that new relationship you have with God in Christ. I firmly believe that, especially, for example, our our morning worship service is, is, is built around the foundation of the three parts of the catechism. We, the people of God, who, who know ourselves to be those biggest sinners, we come into the church, we come into we meet God, and the first thing we know in the face of a holy God is we are sinful people. We're reminded of our sin and misery in, 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 the, in, in the commandments, right? We're brought face to face with our sin and misery. And then what happens, we're, we're brought to our deliverance in Christ. The preaching is our deliverance in Christ. Sometimes people want an assurance of pardon in between there, as if the preaching is not enough of an assurance of pardon. Really? This is our life. We're pardoned in Christ and in Christ alone. And now what do we do? We go the way of gratitude. And, and that's why, to be personal for a moment, that's why your offerings really belong there, folks. And Reverend Vanderbilt didn't pay me to tell, to tell you that. But the offerings belong there because that's the third part of the catechism where you're talking about your gratitude and you show your gratitude by way of the offerings. And you pray about the needs of the people of God because you want to live gratefully in all situations that you're in. That's the way it works. In our communal worship as well, it's not the rituals and routines we create as if so many worship services done exactly this way amounts to so many merit, so many points, so much merit as the Roman practices did. It's about drawing near to God also collectively. It's about leaders, leaders of the church are, are drawing the people of God close to God so that they know Him and experience Him better than any images possibly can do. It's not entertainment. You are not the final recipient of worship. 
so much discussion about worship. It's as if you in the audience are the final recipient of worship. No, no. God is the recipient. We gather together to worship here, to worship God. Even as you watch and hear a minister preach, what are you doing? You're watching a man worship God, and you're joining in that worship as he worships, and you worship together, and he worships in your behalf, leads you in worship. God is not the here to entertain you. The biggest question is not, are you pleased? But it is, is he pleased? We're all here to worship God because he's always the object and the recipient of all our worship and praise. Realize you are still involved, and even as God is the recipient of our worship, also from a covenantal perspective, you need to be involved in a meaningful way because there's supposed to be meaningful back-and-forth covenantal dialogue in every worship service. And of course, your pastor is, is involved in that process. He's going to be the man who is your pastor, and that's going to become evident in so many ways in the way he speaks, the way he does all kinds of things. Don't deny him that, but see the difference. If our worship is through idols and images and rituals, it all becomes simple and easy. You just need the right ones. But if it's about the Word of God, the principles run deep, and we seek to explore those principles. It's about collectively working through our problems, confessing our sins, experiencing the joy of forgiveness and the glad tidings of salvation and life, not in a formalistic manner, but in a meaningful way. And the Christian church, as it moves through the ages, will not say, this is the only way, and until Christ comes back, we have to stick to doing it this way. But it says, together we will work this out so that things are not helpful will be removed, and things that are needful will be brought in. Because the important thing is that generation after generation can worship in a manner in which their hearts draw near to God in sincerity and truth because those who worship God rightly worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then there's this too, we do not become sacramentarians who just check off on the calendar when there will be Lord's Day with Lord's Supper, who then make the bread and the wine into a new kind of idol, a kind of a good luck charm. But we know the important thing is, His body is broken for me. His blood was poured out for me. It's about the body. It's about the blood. And so you come to your second, to our third point with this second word, the covenant, we have to do with a living congregation. What is the point here? Well, the congregation, earlier we saw how Adam didn't need in the garden of paradise, he didn't need images. We said Adam had no need for such because he had fellowship with God, fellowship that was perfect and unhindered. But actually, there was another reason why Adam didn't need images of God. For you see then in the full sense of the word, Adam was the image of God. For what does it mean to be image of God? It means that man, as he goes about his God-given work, as he rules over creation, has dominion, reflects the glory of God in all activity. And you'll see how it went in paradise. Adam didn't need images of God because he himself was the image of God in the full sense of the word. If he had any doubt about the nature of God, the dealings of God, all he had to do was look at himself or look at his wife, and there he beheld the image of God, something of the glory of the only God of the universe. 
But the fall into sin is exactly this. Man's ability to be the image of God has been ruined. Rather than reflect the glory of God, man reflects the ugliness of the evil one and the brokenness of this world. But see what happens in Jesus Christ. First of all, you have to realize Jesus is the image of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. In other words, the exact image of God. And then that in and through Christ, we actually begin, you've got to see, we actually begin to glory God again, to glorify God. When a person is in Christ and lives out of Christ, people go away from Him and say, You know, in him, in that person, I see, I encounter something of God. I think, congregation, in this connection of what the Catechism says in Lord's Day 32, when it says, why must we do good works? Then it answers, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit. And then read a little further. Why does he do all that? So that we will be his image. That's the goal. Also, the goal of the second word of the covenant, rather than make images of God, we have to be the image of God. We have to reflect God in our lives, in who we are, how we speak, what we do. In Christ, through the preaching of the word, that's possible again. Paul says to the Colossians, for instance, about those who are in Christ Jesus, that they've put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. He says to the Ephesians, you were taught to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's where the Lord's Day 3 gets that phrase, the image of God, righteousness and holiness. We are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And it comes about when we put on that new self again. How is it we become the image of God? By obeying and submitting to the Word of God and so growing in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see what happens with the second word of the covenant. The living God shapes for Himself a living congregation through the living preaching of His Word. And that's why you witness simply by living out the Christian life because people will see in you something the world doesn't see and doesn't know. You realize it can be different. Especially the second word of the covenant reminds us of that. It can also be that instead of life, there is death. Instead of being a living congregation, we could be a dead congregation. For doesn't the second word also say, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Talk about fear of God. You have it in the second word of the covenant. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does it mean? It means few things shape the lives of future generations more than what you do with respect to the second word of the covenant. There are a few things that shape the lives of future generations more than worship, worship, and worship. Figure it out. If you become very lackadaisical about going to church, will going to church matter to your children or your grandchildren? If you become indifferent to the service of the Lord, will the service of the Lord make any difference to your children? If you have only complaints and insults about the office bearers, will you leave your children with any respect for them at all? If you choose at Sundays, as happens in some places periodically, to have roast pastor for lunch, so to speak, will you have any respect, will your children have any respect for the pastor of the church 
in the preaching of the word. We reap what we sow. This part of the second word is not to be seen as some kind of curse. What is meant here is how you serve the Lord on this point is a matter of life or death for your children. It goes on, second or third generation, because what you do that your children might reap, might, might, might reap the things you sow. You can see that again and again in the Old Covenant. Whenever Israel departed from the word of the Lord, whenever they dragged in the idols of the nations, whenever they didn't want to hear anymore the prophetic word of God, death set in. Life gave way to death. So too today, if I make the word just a habit or superstition, just going through the routines, if it doesn't have any more vibrancy about it, if I didn't, don't worship God in spirit and in truth, it will have its consequences, not just for me, but it will have consequences on the next generation and maybe the one after that. The deformation which I allow in my life, in my time, in my personal life will continue in their time and in their lives. And I remain responsible for that deformation. The real test of how well we have served the Lord may very well be not whether you make it the goal of life, make it whether you personally make it to the goal of life eternal, but whether our children or our grandchildren are going to make it there as well. Where are we leading them? What are we doing, folks? There's a line in Psalm 115 that summarizes it for all of us. When it speaks about idolatry, it says, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. It's true in more ways than one. Those who worship idols and the children of those who do so will die. There will come a day when they will be as dead and as lifeless as the very idols and the very idolatry to which they have succumbed. But those who serve the living God will be like Him, alive forever. They and their children, by God's grace, alive. And they will be like Him also in this. They will be His image in the Son. They become more and more like Him. The question is, what do you want? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your children? What do you want for your grandchildren? Choose this day whom you would serve. And in all the world I know, and I'm deeply convinced of this, want to live, want to really live there's no better way to live than to live in tune with the creator of this world. He made life. He made us. He formed us. He made this world. What better way to live is there to, than, to, than to live in, in union and communion with the creator of this world? And that's what we get to do in Jesus Christ. And that's alive. That's worthwhile. That bears everlasting fruit to the praise of the glorious God who gives it all to us of grace and grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.